Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Margaret Chen, the head of CA Capital Management, Cambridge Associates' $20 billion outsourced chief investment officer business, or OCIO, as you'll hear. She spent 20 years at Cambridge Associates, which was her first and only stop in the investment business after getting started in the working world as a management consultant at Coopers and Librand. Our conversation covers Margaret's career path, her evolution from a consultant to a principal, the value proposition of an OCIO, measuring performance, and the tension between being the same and being different for clients. Margaret has the ear of almost everyone in our field and brings incredible perspective to addressing the key issues allocators face. Please enjoy my conversation with Margaret Chen. Why don't we start talking about how someone who was the head of their Yale College class went to the Kennedy <laughs> no, no, School no, of Government. No, the Yale College Council. Yale College Council and went to the Kennedy School of Government, ended up in the investment business. Yes, so completely serendipitous. And actually, I would say this is probably the best liberal arts story around because I grew up with uh, parents who immigrated to the U.S. who had no idea what a market was, you know, in terms of like the stock market, the bond market. And so... You know, what, Yale for me was, uh, we should say that we knew each other in college, but Yale for me was such an eye-opener. I mean, you got to a place where, talk about the world is your oyster, there was so much to learn and see, and I actually didn't actually take an investments class or even an economics class till sophomore year, and then that sort of like opened my eyes, but I... 
my real interest at the time was was political science. I was really interested in comparative politics. I was interested in so many things that ultimately actually gave me the skill set to be a very good investor. So, for example, analytical skills in political science are really important. You know, how do you do research? How do you do statistics? How do you do regressions? Like all those things of trying to think about why people vote the way they do, for example, or how do institutions evolve into really high functioning democracies? You know, like those kinds of things are really helpful when you're dealing with um, investments. <laughs> and, so, and as an aside, like political science. Is clearly not a science. Yes, that's right. It's a social science. And that's, I mean, there's a lot of investing that science, right. people from the outside think there's any answer. Right. But clearly, there isn't. It's and that's the exact. That's exactly right. Is that, that investing is an art, and you have to have judgment and wisdom and experience. And you know, political science is the same thing. You can't predict people. You know, and institutions. Clearly, <laughs> right. And the plan was to go on a political science path. Yes. The plan was to go into government of some sort, right? And so I, after doing the Yale College Council, which was a student government, and I was I was the second uh, campus-wide elected president and, you know, the first woman to, to be elected, I thought, what am I going to do? And it was a full-time job. I mean, so I actually had reduced my course load to, to do this. And Edward Tufte, who many people may know, but he started my the thesis advisor. And he was my thesis advisor. And so he, you know, he did the envisioning information and he really was very instrumental because I love the fact of data with design. And he basically said, why don't you go to the Kennedy School? Now, this is 19, so this, I graduated in 1990. And so we came out right on the verge of a recession and it was really hard to get a job. And I was like, well, I was doing the student government thing. I could get a job or I could do something else, like go to law school, go work. or. And he said, why don't you think about the Kennedy School? And I was like, what's the Kennedy School? <laughs> or what's the public policy school? And it was actually, for me, I'm very interdisciplinary, and it's a, it was a very good match of public versus private partnership, and that's what I really attracted me to it. And so I went, and I was one of the very youngest ones in the class, so there was a plus and a minus to that. The, the minus was that you, all your bad habits in college, you know, in terms of studying and stuff, carried over, <laughs> so you didn't have a break. And the plus was that I was very hungry to learn um, from people who had a lot more experience than me. Really Really loved the Kennedy School. From there, I actually did management consulting because you had to sort of major or minor, and I did transportation. Another public-private partnership really ultimately led me to management consulting, and there I was doing a lot of uh, economics finance work. So what happens if two airlines merge? What happens to their routes? And so one day a light bulb went off. I've been an apprentice for like, you know, years <laughs> before I realized that the light bulb went off like I want to do investing. And so in one day, so I started talking to people, and in one day, it took me almost 18 months, three people told me about Cambridge Associates. In the same day? In the same day. Who were those three people? Do you remember? Well, I remember two of them. And one whose name I, I no longer remember. One was Troy Murray, who was a very, very long time employee at Cambridge Associates and a wonderful person and also a Yale grad. And so I had been president of the Yale Club of Boston and I'd known him for eight years and I had no idea what he did. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a young person saying, like, yeah, hey, he's my friend. I have no idea what he did. Another person was um, Heidi Perlson from Adamus Partners sure. and who worked at Cambridge but she had interned at Cooper's and Lamer Consulting, which is where I was working. And so through that, she had said, you know, what about Cambridge Associates? And so, you know, in that, in that one day, and I was like, what is this firm? So I called them up and they basically were kind enough to interview me. They put me through 14 interviews, then told me, Troy called me from London and said, you know, everyone really enjoyed you, but you know, you'd be a high risk hire. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is very nice of him to say. And I said, I basically made a case for why you should give me a, give me a chance. And it's been a fabulous fit. And actually, it was in 1997. And so in three days, it's going to be my 20th anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. That's very exciting. <laughs> it's like yesterday. <laughs> so. so 20 years at Cambridge and a lot's changed in your learning for the business of consulting, the, the OCIO business, which we'll talk about. Why don't you touch a little bit on your path within Cambridge? So how did you start? And let's evolve that to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, it's very different. It was very different in the, in the late 90s. The investing world was very different. When I started at Cambridge, the, I, the path was you worked with, let's say, 10 colleagues who were more senior than you, and it really was an apprentice model. I mean, this doesn't happen anymore because there's a, the world has changed so differently. Technology has changed things and investments have changed. But back then, you could work with 10 people and you work with a multitude of, of different kinds of clients. So the learning curve, it was like, entering college again. It was so steep, you know, and you you could learn one day you can be dealing with currency. The next day you could be dealing with this very large multinational endowment. The next day you could be, you know, working on specifically um, writing something about doing due diligence for a manager. I mean, it was it was just like being bombarded. And so it was incredibly exciting and really just learning from other people, learning from our clients. So that was for several years what I did. And I was very happy doing that. You know, that's a... Yeah, um, they're paying me to really, and I mean, of course, I came in with skills that were very helpful for the the clients in the sense of, you know, the consultant management consulting is actually excellent for process and being able to take a institution or a group of people through a decision, you know, and so advocating for a de- for a recommendation. Those are really important skills because you ha- you can have the most fabulous ideas, but if no one buys into it, it, it doesn't matter. And are there are there a few simple tools? that you could think about of how you walk th- someone through a decision? Yeah, I mean, the way, the way I think are, is most important is if you, you have to understand and you have to appreciate who your audience is. I mean, that's like, it's so basic, but oftentimes folks know what works for them and they extrapolate that to everything else. You know, that's like, that's the only way to do it. But really, if you turn it around and just say, knowing Ted, you know, what is it that would appeal to Ted in terms of how I communicated this information? So, you know, some people are very visual. Some people are very literal. Some people are a combination. Some people are very analytical. Some people, you know, just want to have you talk about it and here you have the conviction. And so you have to be able to really think through those kinds of things. And that seems very simple, but people have hired us to be independent thinkers and to provide them information with what we think should be best for the, for the portfolio. You know, half the battle is being able to get yourself heard. At some point in time, as you go through this broad and deep learning process, the business starts to grow and people get siloed. Where did you end up plugging in after you went through your four, six, eight years, whatever it was, of education? Very early on, I was lucky enough to find a set of clients that really appealed to me, and it was a business that I built. So it was just, you know, serendipitous, but it actually suited my skill set. So I ended up with a client that was a liquidating pool. So instead of, you know, here's a pot of money, and as in, as an endowment, you want to grow into perpetuity, I um, had these set of clients where, for whatever reason, either for environmental reasons, settlement reasons, spend on 
reasons. You know, these are, and this is sort of ahead of their time. We were talking 15 years ago that they had a large pool of money and 35, 40 years from now, they're going to go down to zero. And how do you get them to zero when there's uncertain spending? Some of these are very highly taxable. Some of these have um, significant strengths on what they can invest in. And they're capital preservation oriented. So there's some aspect of endowment oriented because they're long-term horizon. There's some aspect of pensions because they're, they're some asset liability, but in a very loose way. And some of them are highly taxable, like private clients. So I had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that was very important because it was allowed me to be very innovative and think about how to deal with these kinds of pools. So that, you know, I was basically the CIO and it was for these set of clients for many, many years. And that, I think, informed a lot of how I evolved as an investor. And it allowed me to think outside the box. I could look and say, well, what are the best practices out there and apply them in a way that was very unique. And that particular challenge is very different from how a perpetual pool or a endowment foundation pool, pension pool that's not perpetual, but very long dated. You you have a, a pool that's winding down in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. What are the differences in how you'd think about an asset allocation structure or yield versus total return in that type of a challenge? Well, that's a great question. So the the most important concept that I always wanted to you know make sure we protected against was the first phase, whatever that is, one, two, three, five, whatever that first phase is, is the absolute most important critical phase. Because if you don't get that right, then you don't get the other two thirds or three quarters of the you know of the decision right. It depends on the the spending that's going to go out. It depends on what what you think the expected needs are on the draw on the pool. So talk about like thinking about 2008 or even an endowment. I mean, the liquidity and the credit quality is really, really important. I mean, that's the, the you know, you, you have to constantly be vigilant about that because it's so easy to be like, well, the S&P is up 33. Why don't we have 80% of this in, you know, the S&P? But you also have to, have to invest for growth, right? And so there is a balance there that you have to think about. And it's not unlike an endowment where you're, you know, you have to think about long-term pool, but you have to think about liquidity, you know, spending, what your expected return needs to be, and how do you actually put those puzzle pieces yeah. together? And that's what it is. It's a puzzle, because everyone's different. And relative to a foundation that spends 5% or endowment that's something similar, presumably the spending's higher. Yes, in these a pools. lot higher. Yes. And so if you took it your average nonprofit asset allocation, very equity-oriented, very diversified, what does it do to the structure of the pool in general if you know the spending needs are higher than a different type of pool. Yeah. So first, uh, for let me just say for an emotional aspect, you have to be comfortable that the dollar value is going down. <laughs> yeah. you, have to, you have to look at it and you have to be okay that, you know, maybe you had a billion dollars, you know, X years ago and now you have 500. And that, ha- that has to be okay. <laughs> that is really hard for people when, when everyone is conditioned from birth to think that the higher More. the number, yeah. the better, right? So that's, that's, that's really a interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then the second thing is that you have to judge yourself differently. And I actually think um, even for our Cambridge clients, it's really hard to benchmark yourself against your own personal appropriate benchmark. 
like folks say that we have a policy benchmark and that's the you know that's what you should be benchmarking against yourself but it's really hard because we live in a world where everyone's like well how did you do Ted and what did you guys get in your portfolio well I own Bitcoin Margaret I'm doing just fine <laughs> you did great <laughs> exactly so that I think that's you know that was a, a really important thing and then the third is that you're you have to know where you're investing for so are we investing for yield or are we investing for total return you know and we invested for total return because we have a time horizon so as long as you have the liquidity and could accommodate near-term liquidity we could invest for total return and so we did do that but primarily I mean there's a lot of fixed income and we, we try to ladder what we can early on but probably less privates and yes exactly and more fixed income. Yep. that makes sense and so with that core work became a thing for you, it sounds like, Yeah, within within Cambridge. And it allowed me to build a business. So I should probably say that my parents, because they came here as immigrants, you know, built businesses. You know, so my dad came here with nothing, you know, from Taiwan. And he, when he got here, he had no money. So he went and was a dishwasher in San Francisco and paid back, you know, loans to get, you know, for family members who lent him money to get here. So he ended up, you know, going to uh, University of Kansas. Uh, so I'm a Jayhawks fan. And then at Columbia and getting a PhD and in engineering. And But he ultimately started his own engineering company when I was in high school. So watching this, I, we were about to go to college in a couple of years. We're like, do we have enough money to you know, go to college, my twin sister and me? And then my mother started a gift shop herself when I was like, uh, when I was about five. So I grew up in an environment where my parents, who were you know, role models when you're a child, started things. And so... At Cambridge, you know, I started this. Uh, I started this business, and I learned how to develop teams. I learned how to really develop people. I learned how to be a manager, and those are skill sets that I think um, it's, it makes me a little bit sad because when I look around at trustees today. There's so many of even our peers who earn so much wealth at a very young age. Instead of going through the training program and going through the apprentice, you know, everyone says yes to you because you have been so successful so early. And this is the plus and the downside of, of you know, our technological change. And let's talk a little bit about the consulting business. What is it? Cambridge, when I, in my early years, was, was the place that everybody went in the endowment foundation world. And still is a great brand uh, in the business. How does the consulting model work? Well, consulting in some fields today feels like a dirty word, like derivatives. <laughs> but consulting is really important, I think, as a for for the right kind of client. Consulting is re, having a consultant is really important, and that that client is the client that has a strong core in terms of an investment committee or and a staff and needs resources. And whether it's manager information, whether it's ideas, whether it's best practices, whether it's benchmarking, I mean, those, you have to get those someplace. Because in itself, you know, if you were just, if you just had, say, an investment staff and an investment committee, I mean, you have a volunteer group and you have a staff that could be very high quality, but they're going to turn over. I mean, just by definition. And that's, you know, because the people, that's the, the, you know, the, the career path. And so there's not, they're not the resources and there's not the institutional history. And so there's a real place for that. And that's how Cambridge got started, you know. And so, um, you know, Jim Bailey and Hunter Lewis had the foresight to first hire very good people. And, you know, Jim will tell you he was one of the early ones to hire all the women that no one, no one was hiring in the 70s. But, but that, that skill set is very important. Now, the world has changed significantly. And we as a firm has, have also evolved. And I, the structure of having investment committees that are sort of 
permanent investment committee members, as it were, the few folks that stay on for a long time with the institution, and a staff that really stays on for a long time. I mean, you don't get the Scott Moss, Mall Passes of the world. You don't get the Andy Goldens. You know, you don't get the David Swensons. Like that, that they're they're like the outliers now, whereas they used to be the norm. And so the need for consultants has changed, and, and our clients started asking us to evolve into an investment office and to be their outsourced investment office. And that's how we actually got started in the business because in 2000. Our very first client said, "You know, can you just do this for us? Because you know, we got tired of they, they got tired of hiring p- people that left, or they couldn't keep their um, investment committees. You know, they were they termed out, or they you know it was hard to recruit folks. So that's how it got started. Then, 2005, we had our first total portfolio, you know, a very large uh, foundation, and that's where the business has evolved. Um, and it's it's filled a, a really important place uh, when investments have gotten more complex. I mean, investing has gotten more complex." Yeah. On the the OCIO business that you run today, there are a lot of different structures that people can use. Right? You can have one pool, everyone invests in the same pool. You can have asset class pools. You can have customized portfolios for each client. And you can have some combination of all of those. How did you guys approach it and how has that evolved? It was very simple. The way I thought about it was if I were starting an investment office, what would I want? Right. And so there's sort of I would call three flavors. So if you think of yourself as a builder, let's say you're building a house, right? There's there is the everyone has the same house. You're building the exact same house. There's no difference. Everyone's got the white picket fence. And so that to me is more of a product kind of thing. Right. There are those that you're in the same neighborhood, but you might have different kinds of houses. So you say you'll have your colonial or split level. And so that might be the asset class sleeves combination, right? So you're, you're creating a portfolio, you know, like that. The way I thought was most important and most appropriate for an institution was that I'd want to know, you know, what does that institution need? What is it that I, as an institution, um, need from my portfolio? And that's unique to me. And so we are able to provide them with a full investment office, not just an investment team, because in some ways that's the easiest part, but you have to have um, what I call the institution and you have to have the infrastructure. You wanna know that who you hire is gonna be around, and that it's not that you're not going to have to deal with transition, succession, you know. And you also want to have the infrastructure. So today, because of the envir- investing environment, the regulations, you need compliance, trading, over- legal oversight, monitoring, uh, you know, accounting, reporting. I mean, those uh, those you have to buy someplace. I mean, that just comes with the business today. And so the the ability to provide that back office infrastructure, research, plus the institutional stability and the reputation. Plus, you know, the investment team is how we went around building the house. And so, and our clients actually, I would say uh, um, almost a third of them have some sort of unique, what folks would call a mission oriented SRI, you know, whether it's minority managers or whether it's environmental. And that makes it harder to do the first two options because you need to really have a portfolio that reflects your own mission. Yeah. So does that mean that each client kind of has their own portfolio? Yes. Every client has its own portfolio. It's customized to that client's needs. And we spend a lot, a lot of time, you know, working with clients to understand what is going on at that institution. So the whole enterprise, because oftentimes if you, you know, if there's debt covenants out there and you don't know about that, you'd invest differently, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or if there's, you know, for universities, you know, there's a lot of fossil fuel issues out there. You know, if you're not aware of what's going on out there, you, you know, you might need, you know, so those are the kinds of things that 
that that when we started investing, like that that wasn't yeah. that wasn't no one really talked about. And that. what were the other challenges? There's always this question of oh. You're a consultant. You're effectively recommending managers. You know, I sit on an investment committee effectively run by Cambridge Associates. How different is it from when you are structuring the portfolio, making the recommendations of managers to you are now the decision maker? I think in intellectually, there is not much difference in the sense that you know when you're putting a recommendation forth, it needs to be the best recommendation you can make and for all the thought process that you've gone through. The difference really is in execution. So when you have to own that decision, the performance is on you. That is different, right? So, you know, 25 years ago, there was a partnership. It was a partnership with the committee, and everyone had to own it together. But really, in terms of the actual ownership, the, the investment committee owned the decisions. And over time, probably because of you know, how the investment communities evolved, how these institutions evolved, all the wealth creation that's happened, the onus shifted to Cambridge Associates. And that has continued to happen. And so because of that, we recognize that that was really important. And so in order to do that, you have to have the infrastructure to do that. You have to have and be able to allow folks to, um, and to acknowledge and call it out and say, look, now it's not a partnership where, yes, you know, you and the investing committee still has the vote, but, you know, the performance is on us. We, if we own it, we have to own it. And that's where the, the change is. So is it, is it different? I would say the mechanism of making the recommendations is not different, but actually making the, uh, managing the portfolio, underwriting the managers, and ultimately execution and having that monitoring oversight, you know, that is what we can provide to, to clients that are very different. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. How do you think about the business and scaling the business? Uh, well, we do it differently than others. So we have investment teams that are focused by types of clients they work with. It's focused on um, geography and then just you know capacity. So we have we have multiple, and there's a matchmaking that goes on because we're talking about investments. You know, we're talking about matching skill sets and expertise to an institution, and that's my job. <laughs> uh, so I always tell prospective clients, you have to buy the institution first. Like you have to be able to say, you know, say capital as my OCIO provider is the right fit for me. The criteria that we've just talked about, you want, you know, um, resources, stability, experience, um, investment team, you need a whole investment office. You know, if those are all your criteria, then you're in the right place and you can say, okay, who would be the right fit for me? 
And it's so interesting because I deal with this concept of sameness versus being different at the, in every aspect. And this is one of those where I think institutions want to be different, and yet it's very hard to be different, you know. So you look at the numbers that come out every fiscal year as to how everyone's performed, and it's, you know, you're comparing yourself against your peers, but that's not how you're investing. You're investing against your own benchmark for a reason. And we tell our children that. You know, we tell our children to, you know, be yourself, <laughs> and yet you sort of can. Sure. So that's the, that's the tension that I think exists out there. And for us, you know, uh, the monitoring and oversight is really important because we may have multiple teams, but we share the the same builder, the investment philosophy and investment approach, the process by which we, we um, ensure all of our investment teams execute you know, um, their decisions is all the same. So the infrastructure, the institution is all the same. So then it's a matter of, okay, you know, what are the, um, what's the right risk tolerance? What is the right asset allocation? What are the right managers? But I, you know, from a monitoring oversight, it's really important for us, you know, and this is why. I see every portfolio, I see every trade, and you can, you know, you look look through it and you can see actually, you know, we do have that core consistency in terms of the institution and the infrastructure. What are the core investment beliefs that come across all of these portfolios? Uh, well, we have an equity bias. We, you know, there's, there's no question about that. We also, you know, the core beliefs are, you know, we are diversified. We do believe in diversification. And, you know, it's been a very challenging environment to invest in the last, you know, eight years or so. Um, but we've lived through it before, before the tech crisis. It was the same thing as one sector. But, you know, so in our lifetimes, um, it's been challenging to be a diversified investor. But there's no question that, you know, being protective of um, the whole institution and the endowment requires some diversification. So we can argue about how much diversification, but as a concept, it is something that we truly believe. Yeah. And if you dig in, so I, you know, I've scratched my head on this probably more than most people have because of what's happened over the last 10 years, but Warren Buffett says U.S. is just fine. You know, the S&P is plenty diversified. And yeah, it's easy for all of us to look back and say, oh, of course course the U.S. (laughs) is the best economy. Of course, it's the best market. Do people... We think that most of these portfolios are globally diversified, they're equity biased, but across asset classes. Is there anyone that in your conversations with the many institutions that you work with that, that have said, no, U.S. equities is just fine for us. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple, a couple of ways to answer that. One is that the, the stocks in the, say, the S&P are multinational companies, right? So they're not just U.S. companies. They happen to be U.S. domiciled, but they, and much of the revenue can come from abroad. Sure. Even, and, be, even better. Even so better, right? So right, right. Another reason to stick to exactly. the S&P. And second, we're U.S. dollar investors. So that's another reason. Even better. Right, right, even better, right? But the reality is when you go, you know, if anyone has spent any time abroad, you know, let's say you go to Asia, you go to Latin America, you go to Europe, the world actually is different. If you ever pick up a paper and you say, you know, read the front page, you think you were in another, you know, like literally, you, you know, you're like, wow, things are very different outside the U.S. And so in the U.S., we have a luxury of um, being very stable. This is where the political science background comes in. We're very stable. We have a lot of wealth creation. We've had a lot of innovation. And we'll continue to do that. 
But the rest of the world, they become more like the U.S. in many, many ways. And so I think folks would say, yeah, you could do that. that that's perfectly fine to be just in the S&P and say you have cash or fixed income. But just like we wouldn't think that we'd be having an iPhone that has more power than our, you know, than the mainframe computer in the 70s, like, things change and you have to adapt to that. And so as a business, you know, for our clients, we're in the business of adapting and evolving. And you have to because, you know, the world changes. What are the challenges that you face in having multiple clients where you want to put the best portfolios for their clients together, and yet the more assets you're managing, it's a similar problem. Like the larger you get, the more your investable universe can shrink. Well, let me just say, I think having multiple clients is a gift because it's like the whole going to college again. The lear- lessons you can learn very quickly from having multiple clients, it, the learning curve is it's amazing. Like you can immediately see, so we can spot sort of trends or we can spot best practices much faster because you see many, many clients. So there's a real advantage doing that. From an investing standpoint, um, I would argue that that is not actually size as itself or, um, it, or and I think you're asking a question about access, is not an issue. In the sense that I, you know, our belief is that there's not a fixed number of managers out there. So if there were a fixed number of high quality managers out there, yes, everyone would be competing for the same. But if you're a very large pension, you're not playing the same space as a, you know, $500 million, $250 million endowment because your dollars that you have to put to work on a percentage basis are so much bigger. So you might be in very, very large, much larger funds. You know, so those sovereign wealth funds, I mean, they're multi billions of dollars. That's a completely different way of investing. So in some ways, then you have to go, well, the competition then is amongst either, you know, if you were midsize and you wanted to do privates, you know, or if you're smaller, you, the access is a little bit harder. You have to do it, you know, through, through some vehicle. So what we have found in doing our research is that there are people innovating and coming and, you know, starting businesses every day. So if you look at sort of the top performing private funds, they may not be the same as they are 20 years from now. Well, they won't be the same, you know, 20 from now and 20 years previous. And so there's always this, um, I don't subscribe to the fixed pool. I do think that there's always a growth and dynamic uh, innovation in terms of um, investing. So if there's a need, there's going to be a demand. And I think that, that well, one of the things that Cambridge does best is actually doing the manager research. And we, because we have that 45 plus year history, you know, we know the analyst that was at X fund. <laughs> and that five, seven years now, if that person wants to start a, a fund, like we you know where that pedigree comes from. You know, and that's a big advantage. As we've had this pro- proliferation, particularly in the public markets, of ways of accessing exposures for less, so the whole ETF movement, the factor movement, have you thought about incorporating more of those sort of low-cost direct approaches in your portfolios in a way that you may not have in the past if it was just, hey, we're going to just go find the best managers we can for our clients? We are not averse to that, you know, in the sense of anything that can either enhance the return of the portfolio in any way and, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis. So whether it be through um, reducing fees, whether it be through, you know, synthetic exposure, whether it be just, you know, execution, like all of that is on the table. It also depends on the client, too. There's some clients that uh, really have issues with <laughs> more new strategies. So we work with what we have. And, you know, but I would say there's no, you know, we don't have a, uh, a can't have this kind of thing. What happens in a particular example? Let's say there's a new 
let's call it a hedge fund. It doesn't matter. Long only fund, private equity fund that you've known as an organization because they came out of a place you'd supported for a year. You know the person. You want to get behind them. But there's limited capacity. And you have CA capital management, the OCIO business. You have lots of consulting clients. Is there a conflict or is there a mechanism? And what's the mechanism to decide who gets access to something that has limited capacity? So the mechanism is pretty straightforward, and that has to do with, uh, you know, we ensure we're compliant too, but the manager decides. So that fund, the GP, decides who ultimately, as the manager does for any client outside of Cambridge or, you know, within Cambridge, who gets access, which institution gets access. It would be a complete conflict of interest if we had to pick and choose amongst our clients. It's like saying, which one, who's your favorite child? You, you, you can't do that. But what you can do is saying your child's applying to school, and you say, okay, you know, the school has to decide side, how to make that composition amongst their LPs. What is that right composition? Having said that, I will say that I think we have really good access because people want to be with our clients. And because we are not a one-size-fits-all kind of OCIO shop, or then basically, you know, we are not looked at as one entity. You're looking at it and you say, well, do I, what about this endowment? What can this endowment bring? Or this institution? So that's what, you know, we've worked very long with many, many managers and the, the process works because it's fair, because it's transparent, and because, you know, Cambridge is not one large entity in that sense. It has a name, but aside from having that, that infrastructure, um, it has, you know, many underlying different children. <laughs> How do you think about measuring performance of your own teams? Well, there's the qualitative factor and there's a quantitative factor. So the quantitative is fairly simple. We look at performance versus policy benchmark. And that's why we spend a lot of time working with our teams and working with clients to, to ensure we have you know, an acceptable and agreeable policy benchmark. So that part is uh, fairly straightforward. The harder part is the people management of it, right? And so there are a variety of factors. So the client making sure that they're communicating with the client very, very well. And the client understands the expectations and there's a good dialogue on what's going on in the portfolio that they feel, you know, um, they feel as invested in us as we're invested in them. Because this is a long-term proposition. If you're going to do it, it's not a good fit for us if every two or three years you want to change your OSAO provider. Because you're not going to get good returns. Sure. You know, investing is a long-term um, approach. But, you know, you just have to buy into the philosophy. If you're in, buying into the philosophy, like we've had clients where, you know, they were an index and then they wanted to decide they wanted to, you know, um, come to some to Cambridge and really appreciate a diversified portfolio. We've also had the other way. You know, you're like, we built you this fantastic portfolio knowing that when they terminate us, they're going to be hitting the wrong time in the index and we see it and that's, you know, that's the way to so. So we say, think it's really important to do the homework you know, make sure they come on site and understand like what, what approach and the process that we, we take. So the second thing is on the qualitative aspect of it, making sure that the teams have an underlying process that they can, that we can replicate, you know. So regardless of whether it's um, the decision that they make, not only do they feel like they have conviction, but they also have real conviction in how they got to that decision so that they can own that decision and that they understand how it interacts in the whole portfolio. Because what we're trying to do is, you know, we're trying to 
to earn a certain kind of certain return for for a client. And so how the team works together, you know, the investment decisions they make, the process how are you a corporate citizen? Are you sharing? One of the advantages of working with Cambridge is that it's really lonely being a CIO. And so if you're a CIO at an institution, sort of no one's really going to want to talk to you and tell you your secrets. But we have the CIOs get together every month. They talk about investment issues. They can talk about what they're hearing from their clients. And that's a real benefit because then all of a sudden you can say, ah, you know, I am struggling with the same thing. You know, whether it's a manager, whether it's a, an issue, a question from a client, you know, whether it's a market, uh, you know, concern, and you can talk through it. And by virtue of clearing your head and and getting some comfort in uncertainty, um, and that others are in the same boat that you are, it really helps. And that's a that really makes you more focused as an investor, and helps you get better long term, you know, returns. One of the things I was always curious about in a model where you have a deep research team that's separate from the CIO is how, how do you get conviction in individual decisions? Because I know when I sat in the seat, even if you had a small research team, you always wanted to be in front of the portfolio manager to, so you can use your own instinct and experience to say, yeah, this is, this is someone I want to have in my portfolio. In a bigger organization, when you have dedicated research teams, I just from the outside, I imagine that that can't always happen. You can't have every CIO sitting with every portfolio manager. We don't have every CIO, but you have an investment team member um, having met with the manager because what we do at Cambridge is we have a, a dedicated research manager research team and research group that's global but we also have it's a partnership um, model so investment team members can go to any meeting. And so if you're investing in that manager, um, managers cycle through many of our offices, and but we're also on the road all the time. So there will be always an investment team person who has seen a manager. We'll, we won't invest in a manager that we have not seen. And so therefore, you have almost a double check, right? Because you have um, you have all the proper due diligence you know, that we've done on a manager, and that's done by our research team. And then, on that, then, then the next question is, is it the right fit for the portfolio? For that institution, and that is what the institutional, and that's what the the te- investment team member, you know, has to decide. And what does the manager see then from the other side of the table? So they've seen a research <laughs> team come in, they have this CIO I'm come sure in, that, that CIO sure. come in. Well, what they tell us is this: what they tell us is, look, they really appreciate. It can be a lot of work relative to other competitors out there, but it's worth it because they they know that we appreciate and understand what it is they do, and we have long term investors, and they have clients that have, uh, you know, basically bought into what Cambridge offers um, and are there for the long term. I mean, we have a 97% retention rate for the last five, you know, over the last five years. And I think the, the average tenure is something like 12 years. So these are, these are institutions that are not going anywhere. They, they believe in long-term investing. They believe in diversification. They believe in you know, the structure and the infrastructure that we provide them. And the managers appreciate that. So we might put them to their paces, but you know, it's, it's, uh, managers tell us that they, they, they appreciate it in the long run. It's like, it was worth it. <laughs> and then does that translate to the tendency to hang around for a long time with managers, or can individual CIOs on a team decide 
I, I no longer like that particular manager in my portfolio. Yeah, so there are so two levels on that too. So the research team will ultimately make a research decision on a manager. So there's, you know, they go through under regular due diligence. Um, on a second level, the investment team could also decide for investment for that specific client need that the manager is not no longer appropriate for the portfolio. It could be for a variety of reasons. It could be you're cutting real assets. And so, you know, that they, you have to you figure out which manager to trim. It could be that you find a, a better fit for a risk return profile. You know, it could be, you know, there are lots of legitimate reasons why that could be the case. But then and we do allow the teams to make individual decisions um, on managers. And the reason is because I don't think in investing there is a standard A to B. Like, you know, managers, that is a, again, you're hiring an investment team and you can get the same return and, you know, get there differently. So I think um, in that sense, this is where the sameness and different being different is there's always a tension there and uh, we're comfortable living with that because I think that every institution is different and so if you're different you have to be able, you have to allow the investment teams to have that difference and again if you have the proper monitoring oversight you know that's fine we, we see all the managers in the portfolio so I can tell you you, right. know, you know where the overlap is and where it's not what are the trends in the OCIO business so if you were to look out five or ten years from now what do you think your business looks like and what does this sort of industry of OCIOs look like? If we looked out five, ten years, I'd say we're in the early innings in the sense of um, there will be consolidation in the industry. And there also, there will be a consolidation of models, you know, in terms of, you know, what clients want in terms of their OCIO provider. You know, there's just, there's so many providers now that the, the, the barriers to entry in some ways um, are still relatively low and they're getting higher. They're getting higher because you need the infrastructure, you need the resources, you, you know, you need to invest in those. So, so, uh, you know, but in the early days, you know, anyone can hang, hang on a shingle and, and, you know, you can outsource a lot of the, the back office. But more and more clients, I think, are realizing the reason they want to hire an outsourced investment office um, and the concept and the model, sort of the way that um, we provide our clients a full investment office, it's not just the investment team. It's everything around it that's really complex. And some of it's so manual, you know, even today and, and to to that is actually very different. And a lot of folks don't appreciate that because they don't see it. Like if you keep the trains running, that's not, you know, everyone's like, of course you got the trains running. But the minute it doesn't, you know, work, like, you know, in 2008, a lot of it went off the rails. You see where those cracks are. So I think that's in five, 10 years, that's what we're going to see. If you look back in the early 70s, I guess it was in Boston, endowment management and research was sort of this original OCIO business. I think they managed Yale's endowment. And then when you went through that difficult period in the markets in the 70s and the purchasing power of these pools got crushed, that took the what was an early OCIO model and turned it back into individual investment offices. Are there any lessons that you guys thought about as you were moving into that from the failure of the first wave of OCIO businesses to make sure that whatever happened then won't happen again this time around? That's a good question, Ted. I think one of the things that has changed is when that model failed, it forced people to hire their own. The fact that, you know, David Swenson or Scott Mopass were hired in their 20s and early 30s, that won't happen today again. But that's what forced folks to say, you know what, we want our own CIO. We want to build our own team because we now, we will know what they're investing in. We will have some say and some control over what they're investing in and some, some provide some guidance. 
You know, today, uh, in some ways, because technology is so good, and also because the, the outsourcing as in our daily lives is just a fact of life. Folks are just much more comfortable with saying, you know what, I'm going to hire a specialist, you know, for X, Y, and Z, including my endowment. And as long as that communication mechanism and that information interchange and that, you know, you have confidence that your CIO and investment team understand and and not only, like, we feel that we are part of those institutions. Like, we may be, say, Capital or Cambridge Slices, but we feel that we are, you know, at that institution's investment office, you know, just down the hall from the CFO or the president. That's what you want, you know, because then it really doesn't matter where you are, you know, as long as you see them regularly. But I think that's, in some ways, we've come full circle, right? <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> because of the world's changed. What are the biggest challenges you see going forward? I think there, there are two challenges. One is making sure folks have enough experience to be really strong investors, but be open-minded enough to continue learning. Because I think that since we have graduated from college, wealth creation has been incredible. Almost seems too easy out there for institutions as well as individuals. And in some ways, I worry that that leads to sort of a yes culture. You know, so, you know, if I have the means and I'm giving and being philanthropic, which is a wonderful aspect, you know, of one's life, you also have the power. And, you know, we're talking about power all over today, you know, and, you know, in workforce. And I think that if you always feel that and know and have that um, and people treat you that you're like you're always right, it's actually very dangerous for investing. And so it's, it's, a, it's a variable of the dominant vo- voice in the room um, problem. But when you have five dominant voices in the room, sometimes they can't get along. <laughs> So, you know, one of the challenges is, you know, those kinds of individuals. And the second is, I think that since in the 25 years, you know, I've been in the business, I would say civility and gratitude are things that I worry about because I don't think people are very civil. And I think that people, if they don't like it, they'll leave, you know, instead of sort of working out and saying, well, Ted, why do you, why do you think that? You know, what is it that makes you think that? That's something that if if uh, what makes me worried because it leads to poor decision making, you know, from hiring your OSIO provider to um, deciding whether your performance is acceptable to just basically not serving the institution well if you're a trustee um, or even if you're a staff person. When you come from one lens and one funnel and one perspective, it's, it, you know, you, you worry that you aren't doing right by the institution. What do you see yourself doing 10 years from now? <laughs> Well, okay, so next year is a big year because I'm turning the big 5-0. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so 10 years, I think, in some ways, is like tomorrow. <laughs> if I think back 10 years, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's like they got a long ways to go. And now I think it's not that long. So I would say, you know, at different points in my career, I wondered, you know, is, is Cambridge the right place for me? But Cambridge has been tremendous in the sense of it's allowed me to have different careers at one place. And the older I get, the more I would not give up our clients and I wouldn't give up my colleagues. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous group of um, individuals and institutions. And there's an aspect for me of giving back and, and, and serving. And this is my way of doing that. So it's not to say that I would or wouldn't be at Cambridge, but anything I do will have that element to it. And it's, it's important to me. Great. Well, Margaret, let's turn to a few fun closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment, either <laughs> as a participant, which might be intramural ping pong, I'm not sure, or it as is. a fan? 
God. That is, that is exactly what it was. Um, that was my favorite sports moment was the, was, was my own personal sports moment was intramural ping pong at college. We won the, we won the team cup for it. But actually, I will tell you actually what was the most intramural, for, for me athletically was, because I was an immigrant, we loved baseball. I mean, I loved the Yankees growing up, but I knew nothing about football. And so freshman year, like second week of school, I must have been in shorts and sneakers. And some guy comes up to me and says, you know, we are so desperate for a woman to come out because it was Koei Touch football. And we're going to forfeit the game if we don't have another woman come out. And so, you know, I was in shorts and sneakers, so I must look like I could run or something. And so I was like, ah, and then I didn't have the heart to tell him I knew nothing about football. <laughs> like literally nothing. I didn't even know where the end zone was. So we get out there. I said, OK, fine. So I get out there and he says, just go to your right and just run straight and then just turn around and I'm going to throw you the ball because after watching me a couple plays you could see that I could run so I did that I caught the ball and then I knew enough to be like I have to run to the end zone but I just started running the other way and then everyone's yelling and it was because I was already in the end zone (laughs) so I learned football really fast so that was uh, was (laughs) what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you to be self-sufficient. My parents are, I think, because they were immigrants and they came with very little, um, it was very important to them to tell their three daughters that uh, to be self-sufficient and independent was very, very important. And they even said to the point, I remember our conversation, they're like, you can never depend on a guy. <laughs> you know, you have to, and they don't mean it in that sense, but they meant in a yeah. financial sense, in the sense that it was really important to do that. What information do you read that other people might not know about? The most favorite thing I read is The New Yorker. I think The New Yorker by far gives me the best bang for my buck in terms of the time I have, the the variety and diversification of stories, the excellent writing that I hardly see anymore, you know, and I used to love The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times when they write these big, deep articles. They run a business too, and they just, you know, it's hard to be able to have the money to do that. And I think, you know, for me, the as I've gotten older, I'm very interested in people and sort of what other perspectives people bring. So I do love reading books about people and I love reading autobiographies. But the, the reality is also that I have to limit myself because I will literally stay up till four in the morning finishing a book. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a bad, it's a bad quality. <laughs> what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? To just slow down, you know? We all run around doing so much. And it's not that we, that's not a good thing. It's that no one, no one spends the time and smells the roses and goes, you know what, that was really awesome. And just taking the time to do that, I think, brings a measure of satisfaction and happiness to life, especially if something's particularly challenging um, to be able to do. That's okay. And also, you know, failing is okay. You know, this, this is a culture where people do not, you know, feel very shamed for failing. And I think for me, I'm like, yeah, I failed lots of things and that's okay. <laughs> I learned to pick myself up and just move on and say, you know what? There's always tomorrow. All right. Last one. It is your waning days. You are 90 years old, creating whatever next business you're going to create. <laughs> Looking back on your life, what advice would you give yourself today? I would say it's so important to learn something new. I have forced myself because I had to in, you know, um, when my kids were learning how to ice skate, I was like, I have, I have from New Jersey, I'm, my parents from Taiwan, I've never learned how to ice skate. So I forced myself to learn how to ice skate. I did it for six years. And 
accomplishing the ability to skate well is great. In my 40s, I learned to cross-country ski um, because my kids are doing it, my husband loves it, and I had resisted it. And I, like, and I love cold weather. But like being on skis, if you've never been on skis as an adult, is the most challenging thing ever. And then now, I basically am taking adult ballet. And so, and I'm also learning Mandarin. I can speak basic restaurant Mandarin, but I want to get better. And it, it's so humbling to learn something new. So I encourage everybody to pick one thing, and you're going to feel like you're five or ten again and have that anxiety, like, i got to be good at that. And that's such a good feeling because when you actually improve, whether it's running or anything, you know, you really, it really makes you feel alive. Margaret, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. We'll be right back.